Good morning. Good to see you guys and be with you guys. If this is your first time here, you're visiting, I'm glad you could be here with us. My name is Ricardo Stewart, one of the pastors. Get an opportunity to do the bulk of the preaching, and we'll get a chance to do such today as we begin a new series in which we title Exiles. And so we're going to be looking at the first six or seven chapters of the book of Daniel. Now, this is going to be a little different than most of our books when we go through books of the Bible. We're not going through the whole book because this is actually a topical uh, series in which we're drawing from the book of Daniel. So we'll be in this series for six weeks instead of six years. And so... There's going to be a lot of fun. So if you have a Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and keep it raised really high. One of the ushers will walk down the aisle and get you a copy of God's Word so that you can follow along with us this morning. If you don't have a Bible, like you don't own a Bible, keep the one that we are handing out as our gift to you so that you can grow in an understanding and the knowledge of the Lord. Um, as you turn there, just a brief overview of this particular series and why we're doing it. Um, we're doing this particular series because we believe that we are in a particular time as followers of Christ, that we're trying to make sense of how do we follow Jesus and the culture in which we live in. And what I mean by that is that's not a, just a political statement or ideology, ideological statement, a social statement. It's being how do we follow Christ in a land that is increasingly, increasingly hostile to the gospel in which we believe and which we preach. And so drawing from an understanding of what does it mean to be in exile, we look at the exiles in Scripture. And primarily, Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in which we're going to look at um, over the next six weeks. And during this, we're going to look at the cultural idols or the competing narratives in our particular context that is competing with the narrative of the gospel, whether that be extreme individualism, hedonism, um, consumerism, and so forth, as we begin to draw from the life of, of these uh, men and also as a point to God and what does it look like for us to be faithful with God. So along with the sermon series, we also have some blogs that are going to be written that I really want to direct your attention and make sure you guys are reading those. That's going to be online. And then we have podcasts that, um, that coincide with every sermon that we're going to be talking about. And the podcasts um, are, are good. They're very good. Um, we have people that are a part of the podcast that are part of our church here. We have some people that are part of the podcast that are that are part of you know, other churches in the States and also outside of the country speaking to some of the things that we're going to, be, going to be talking about. And so we're praying that God by his spirit would continue to give us a way forward of faithfulness as we try to make sense of uh, who God is, make sense of our lives, and how we follow him as a particular people that are lived or called to live for his name. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning um, and for the next several weeks. But before we do that, let's go ahead and pray. Um, ask God to bless our time this morning uh, so that we can follow him. Jesus, we thank you for your grace that you've given us. I pray right now, Lord, by your spirit, you would give me clarity of thought and focus, Lord, that the name of Christ would be elevated. Help us to see, um, one, the lies that we all believe. Help us to be honest with ourselves, Lord, of, of how our faith has been, become so synch like synchronized with the culture around us that sometimes, Father, even in ourselves, that if we're honest, you feel distant. Um, so God, we ask that you would lead us in this series. God, that you would give a greater desire in us for, for, for renewal, Lord, not just personally, but corporately. Um, that the Spirit would fall upon us afresh, that we may live um, faithfully as your people. God, I do uh, pray that you would give us the vision that's needed. You would give us the conviction that's needed, the discernment, as well as the guidance and the hope of the gospel that is in us, Lord, would also be that in which we proclaim and live and the world around us. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. About 2008, there was an article that was written um, 
Uh, it's basically a snapshot of a book that was written by Julian Barnes. And what he says is, he starts off the whole book and he makes this statement. And it says, um, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And there was a sense of going, I don't believe, but I kind of desire, maybe I miss him. And I would take that same quote right now and like listening to the lives of our people, you and me, and going, as Christians sometimes we feel we believe in God and yet we still miss him. There seems to be, in our experience sometimes, this growing distance between like who God is and how do we live for him in this world. That many of us have been walking with Christ for some period of time. We love to tell stories of ways in which and how God used to move in our life and how we begin to experience God and how we see in areas in which the Spirit was moving. And in some way, we find ourselves oftentimes with this leftover faith is what I like to call it. Stuff that we'll take out every once in a while, reheat to tell the stories again as if God is not moving and active and he doesn't speak today and the, the different cultural realities that we have now. And what we, we're, we're looking at here is Daniel gives us insight to who God is and how we can faithfully in the hope of the gospel be able to not just say, I believe in God, but I miss him, but to believe in God and understand that we can rejoice in him in his presence in the context of the place in which we live with the people of God who are with and also for God. That we can have some sense of a way forward to be followers of Jesus. Because if we're just honest, there's many of us in this room, friends you have, family members that are in the faith that seem to be one to two clicks away from walking away from not just church, but God altogether. Some of us are people who have just stepped back into the doors of the church to begin to question again, can I follow this Jesus? Is he good? Is he good? Is he powerful? Is he loving? And so forth. And we believe the gospel is big enough for all of those questions and all of those doubts if we would submit ourselves to who Jesus is. Amen? So we have the book of Daniel we're going to look at. Let um, me just kind of give you some context here, and we're going to walk through, for the sake of flow, we're going to walk through the whole uh, first chapter of Daniel, and then from there be able to draw some things of postures in which we ought not to have as God's people, and then one posture that we ought to have. And so the context here is that God's people were in Babylon, excuse me, they were in Jerusalem. That was God's city. In Jerusalem, the people of God, they had, they had their narrative, they had their story. Like they had known about this great God who had, who had redeemed a people and set them aside for himself, had given him his law, his presence and spirit and so forth. And they had the temple, a place to worship. It was a very Christian, Christian, if you could say Christian, very Jewish culture. They believed in God. But what happened is um, that was the, a lot of the assumptions that everyone believed in God. You could truly say it was a God-believing nation. But when you look at their actions, when you look at the way they function in their belief, they were actually worshiping other gods. And what God would do is that he would begin to send prophets to communicate to them about their life. One of those things they would say, if you continue to obey these false gods, God would say, I'm jealous for you because you are my people. Like, I love you. But if you continue to do that, I'm going to allow another nation to rise up and to come and take you away. Well, that's exactly what happened. And that nation was going to be Babylon. And then that's where um, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the people we're here about, that's where they find themselves in, away from the temple, away from their place of worship, many and oftentimes away from their family, away from the things that were comfortable to them, and a place in which they have to figure out what does it mean to follow God. If you put the scripture up here again of Psalm 137, the scripture that we're going to read before every text because we believe this question sets the stage of this series is that the context here is you have these captives. 
And they, they weren't slaves in the sense that like the people of God were in Egypt, but they were taken away into this foreign land. And they were forced, they're, they're on the bank of the water of Babylon. And, and their oppressors were going, sing us a song. Tell us about your God. Like, is he really good? And they're not really sure on how to live. They're not really sure on how to be able to communicate. And these were the artists, and these were those who were writers and creatives, which oftentimes are able to see into things of culture that most of us can't see because we only think linear. They can see things sometimes far deeper and communicated in ways that emo emotionally we can connect. But they say this, this question, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest. He says, it, the, the, the writer here was saying, like, how can we sing? How do we worship God? How do we live for God in a place that does not honor him? And there's this bold commitment of saying, if I forget you, Jerusalem, if I forget you, God, take these skills away, put my tongue to the top of my mouth, that these gifts and talents that you've given me, if they not, cannot be offered up to you in this foreign space, take them away. I'm not really sure if we realize sometimes we've been co-opted to say, we'll take the talents, we'll take the skills, even when we do forget Jerusalem. What Daniel begins to give us is ways in which to look and say, how do we worship God? How do we sing to the Lord? How do we raise our families? How do we do marriage and singleness? How do we do politics and arts? How do we do these things in such a way that we can faithfully follow God in a culture that is increasingly saying no to the things of the gospel? So join with me, Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besaged it. Besaged is a word that means he took care of business. Verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of God. Okay, so here's what's happening. Um, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and is taking over things. And it sounds like, oh, he went into the jewelry shop, took the jewelry, and then took it back. This had everything to do with my God is being more powerful than your God. That we said, I'm stepping in, I'm taking your most treasured things, I'm taking them out of your house of your God, and I'm putting them in my house. And so in some ways, to paraphrase it, Nebuchadnezzar is looking at the king of Judah and saying, now what? Right? Question mark. And then he takes the stuff, continues to take the people. Verse 4. Or verse 3. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So here's what's happening now, all right? Just, just so you see, there were three ways of this exile. First wave, they came and took a group away. Um, these were Daniel and his friends. Second wave, they took another people. And the third wave, they came in and they burned the city down. This first particular wave that we're talking about, here's what Nebuchadnezzar did. Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm not going to bring you to as slaves. No, this is, not what we, this is not what we did in Egypt. This is far more progressive than that. We're going to bring you into this diverse cultural experience in the middle of the city. And Nebuchadnezzar says, so here's what I want you to do. Um, he says that to Ashpenaz, which, by the way, none of the kids up here was named Ashpenaz. They stopped doing that. So, <laughs> and so he, takes, he says to the eunuch, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get the brightest. I want you to get the smartest. 
He says, I want you to get those who look good, they're good in appearance, um, those who are educated, get the young, the creative, and so forth. Take them, one, because they're young enough that if we can just bring them into the middle of our city, into our urban core, so to say, allow them to be educated for three years in the ways of our culture, um, allow them to eat the food that comes from my table, allow them to drink the drink, not the drink, the drink from my table, right? Have them, have them do that and just let them live there. Now, here's what his thought was. And this is not just unique to Nebuchadnezzar. The thought was our culture is so strong here that we want more thoughts and ideas and so forth. Tell them to bring their religion, whatever, because our culture will overshape that. And if we can take their goods and their talents, then, then it will actually enhance our culture. And eventually, this thing of faith and their gods, it will fade the black. Now, that, that's not unlike a lot of our culture today. How many of us, how many people do you know that go into a place, that come to a university, that come into a particular city that has multiple thoughts and teachings and so forth, that has the intellect, that are young, that are wise, that are good looking, that are creative and so forth, and eventually that culture begins to shape them in such a way that their faith is completely gone. If not gone, it's definitely got the dimmer switch switched all the way down. Nebuchadnezzar, let's, let's do that. And then we'll shape them in such a way that they will make our culture way better. And the things of their culture that we don't want, it will begin to fizzle. And so that was Nebuchadnezzar's thought. He goes on, it says, And the king assigned them daily portions of the food, the food of the king and the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. It's a good name right there. And so they gave him names. Now, there were other people there, but Daniel focuses on um, himself and his three friends. Verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the, the chief eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let us appear, let, let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servant according to what you see. And so he listened to them in this matter and he tested them for 10 days. And at the 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter and flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and their wine and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Okay, so here's what's happening. You go, okay, this is like about eating. Like what are we talking about here, right? So here's what happens. The king says, I want to show them something. I want them to eat my food. I want them to drink my drink. I'm going to hook them up. Daniel says, listen, we're not going to defile ourselves. We'll talk about this later. Like, for whatever reason, Daniel does some interesting things here. Daniel lets them rename him. And one of the ways that, just so you know, when they renamed them, those were names of gods in their culture. Daniel says, you going to call me Belteshazzar or Belteshazzar or Belshazzar? I knew what my mama calls me. Go ahead. But when they said the king wants to feed him, I'm not eating that. I know what my mama feeds me, right? 
And he steps away from it and said, just, just trust us in this. Trust that somehow we're trying to make a decision on what it means for us to be faithful to Yahweh in this particular land. And so the, the eunuch, for whatever reason, likes Daniel. And he says, Daniel, this is not good. Uh, the king wants you to eat, but we'll see. I'll, you know what? We'll see. And all of a sudden, it says, the people who ate the vegetable and the water, they came forth. Now, I don't think this is a prescription on what you should and should not eat, right? There's a lot of books out there um, that that you can take this fast and whatever, the Daniel fast or whatever. Like, this is what Daniel did. I don't think Daniel's saying, and therefore, the people of God said, no, forget that meat. Um, eat vegetables, drink water. That's not, that's not it. There is that wrestling of what does it mean to be faithful or the way that we, it was said earlier in days, of what does it mean to be in the world but then not of the world? And Daniel and his friends are trying to figure it out. And it says afterwards, they, they realized, hey, they look better than all the other people. And so from there on, they said, hey, you guys can eat whatever you want to eat. Verse 17, and as for these youth, God gave them learning and skill and all literates, uh, literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael. And Azariah, therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians, the enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. And so there's, there, that, like, that's Daniel 1. In a nutshell, Daniel and his homies, uh, we, we should have titled the series Daniel and His Boys. We didn't, though, right? It's a collaborative effort. So... We, Daniel and his boys get ripped away from their town. They have some sense of saying, we know we need to be in this culture, yet we need to be faithful to God. Somehow they make the decision to say, we'll take the names, but we're not going to eat the food. God gives them favor in response to God being faithful to them. He was faith, they were faithful to God. God gives them favor, not just in their own life, but even in the culture that they're at. And so that's what we see. We go, okay, how does this give us a lane forward and understanding how can we sing a song? How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign country? So there's a few ways to think about this, right? So one way is when we think about like the postures we ought to have or not to have as Christians. So two postures we ought not to have and then one we should have. The first one is don't assimilate. Don't assimilate. The second one is don't withdraw. What we ought to do is have a sense of a faithful presence in which now we'll be able to see those things in Daniel chapter 1. So don't assimilate, don't withdraw, but have a faithful presence. So first, don't, don't, don't assimilate. Don't assimilate. So here's, here's, here's what you understand about culture. And just to boil this down in a way that hopefully makes sense to you guys. If it doesn't make sense to you, I'm sorry. Next year, right? So there's, there's people usually see that there's three cultures. There's the first culture that they would describe as a pre-Christian culture. And a pre-Christian culture will be a culture that has many gods and beliefs that are kind of taboo, like I want to do certain things and then the, 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 the gods won't be mad at me or if I do these things and they'll be pleased with me and they'll give me things and so forth. And then what happens is from that particular culture, that's the pre-Christian culture, there becomes this Christian culture. Now when I say Christian culture, it doesn't mean everybody in the culture is Christian, right? But it's a Christian culture that has an understanding of like creeds or beliefs that they have a sacred text. So think about Judeo-Christianity, the Bible. We believe the Bible reveals to us who God is and tells the story of what he's like and what he's doing in the world. Well, the second culture, the Christian culture, 
They take their good news, the hope of the gospel, and they bring it to the first culture in which the men and women and children of that culture begin to have life in the work of Christ. We do this for years. We send them around to different worlds and countries to be able to share the gospel with missionaries and so forth. It's a beautiful thing. Well, at some point, people go, we got an issue, at least in our country, or at least in, I would say, the West in general, that's Europe and North America. Now, I say that because whenever I would hear people say, in the West, in the West, I think in terms of NBA and NFL. So I was like, in the West, you talking about the Lakers, we're talking about, what? right? Even in, when even in high school, they were like, in the Western culture, I'm like, Western culture, yeah, like Snoop Dogg, all right? And you say, like, Eastern culture, I'm like, Biggie, okay. Jay-Z, oh, we get it. What about the Midwest? What are we going to do with Twista, right? And so, so, so you have, you have, right? And I, so I go, Western culture, don't think I know. I had to learn, right? I had to learn. So, so what you have in those particular cultures, many of the missionaries, those men and women who have gone over to other cultures, let's say pre-Christian cultures, they've come back after years of living there and going, whoa, what happened here? Right? Like, what happened here? I was watching this TV show, um, the, the original OG or the last OG was Tracy Morgan. You shouldn't watch it, but I was watching it. And, and the premise of this story is Tracy Morgan is in Brooklyn, like old Brooklyn and uh, hood Brooklyn. And he goes to jail and then he gets out of jail years later and he's walking down the street and he's seeing people giving like, you know, like vegan popsicles to their kids. It's like white people. It's also, I mean, it's like, and he stops and he goes, what the heck happened to Brooklyn? Like, you know, like, like what happened? So the missionaries got back and they look around and they see people giving vegan popsicles. And, uh, nah. and they're like, what happened to America? What happened to the West? We need to take mission and continue to remission sort of way to be able to re-narrate the gospel in ways that people understand Jesus, if you track with me. So you have pre-Christian and then you have Christian culture. And the way they realize is what happened is when they begin to go overseas or to other places and bring the gospel, they didn't just bring the gospel, right? Here's what I mean. There's no such thing as an acultural gospel. So, so that means they brought the, go- the gospel, but they also brought their culture with them, and they begin to, in a lot of ways, colonize these people. And I don't mean that just in a derogatory way. It's going, we're not just bringing the purity of the gospel because we actually brought ourselves with it and we were telling them in a lot of ways to become Westerners and believe in Jesus instead of become Jesus-like people in your particular context and have indigenous leaders that raise up and so forth. So then we said, okay, we, we, we can't, we don't want to colonize them, so we need to bring the gospel and we need to speak the gospel in language that they can understand and symbols and stories in which they can understand that they can have an indigenous leaders to believe in the hope of the gospel. Here's what the problem was. They didn't realize there was a third culture. So we had taken the gospel and going to the pre-Christian world, the pre-Christian world, but what had happened in a lot of the West, and that is still happening, is it was no longer pre-Christian as if the gospel had ever gone there. The gospel had been there before, that people had believed before. And what happened was it's not pre-Christian, it's definitely not Christian, it's somewhere in there what we would call either post or anti-Christian. That you're not coming with the sense where people are curious, this Jesus, tell me about him. No, you have people who have all sorts of preconceived ideas and thoughts about who Jesus was because many of these people have been a part of some sort of religion, some sort of church, some sort of denomination that was Orthodox, that was Catholic, that was Protestant, that was something. And they're going, we went, we tried, no, thank you. That's who we're communicating to. And the way I think of it is, um, I'm not a good cook. I never claimed to be a good cook, right? Have you, one time I found myself cooking something. And it was, it was very bad. Um, and it made me sick to the point, right? And um, 
we all have, we all have that food. You know what it is. That one thing you're like, oh, I can't mess with it. I can't. And some your friends will try to convince you, no, 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 you don't understand the way I make it, the way my mom makes it. And you're like, no, just the, just the thought of you talking about it right now makes me want to regurgitate. I told you we were at a restaurant uh, where I was in a different, I was in Portland, I was teaching at Josh's old church. And Josh gave me a recommendation of a, of a restaurant called um, Le Pigeon, right? And, uh, and it was supposed to be one of the best restaurants in Portland. So Holly was with me and I was like, listen, girl, I'm going to take you out. You know how I do. I take you to the best, right? So we get there and I, this, I couldn't even barely understand the menu. So it was, it was a black dude that was our waiter. And, um, and I said, hey, bro, be real with me real quick, man. You know I don't know how to order this stuff, man. Uh, how, about, how about you just bring a few items? Out? He goes, and, he, and he chose, oh, I will give you the best. And he was speaking all proper. I was like, come on, man, you, it's me, right? And so, and he was like, all right, dog, I got you. So he comes back, and they brought these, these plates out. And then finally, they brought out a pigeon. Like a pigeon, right? So... I'm looking at the, the pigeon, and I look at Holly, I'm like, is that a real pigeon? She goes, yeah. And so she bites into it, and she eats it, and she knows me. I got a very weak stomach. She goes, don't try this. <laughs> true story, true story. The next day, we're walking past that restaurant. The very thought of that pigeon came to my head, and I immediately gave it on the, on the, up on the, side, on the sidewalk. about visuals today, guys? The third culture has in a lot of ways, hear me on this, the third culture in a lot of ways has consumed the gospel, um, digested it, and regurgitated. And the very thought about anything to do with Jesus or church or the things in which we, we are part of makes them sick. And yet that's, what we're, that's the culture in which we are increasingly becoming to be able to go out and hold out the hope of the gospel. And what, what our natural tendency is as the people of God is to go, um, let's just assimilate in this culture. You know why? The culture has all sorts of hints that look like the kingdom. The culture has all sorts of things that seem to be parallel with the things in which we see in scripture that are revealed in the understanding of the whole gospel. The culture right now says we need to look at gender and see that there's equality, and the church is going, wait, we're, yeah, same here. The culture right now is saying we got some issues racially and so forth. We got to see how we can have reconciliation. The church, oh, yeah, here too. The, 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 the culture is saying, look at all these beautiful goods. Look at what technology has been able to bring. Look at how easy it can make life. Look how amazing this could be. Look at the aesthetics. Look at everything. Food tastes better. Things look better. I mean, this is amazing. We're going, yeah, we have an understanding of a doctrine of creation to say, yeah, these are good things. And what we find ourselves doing is stepping into this world saying we have a faith in God. We're in the good creation that he's made. And we look at all of these goods that he's made. And pretty soon, before we even recognize it, those goods that were from the giver become substitutes for the giver itself. And we find ourselves being intoxicated by this that pretty soon what gets faded to black or turned down is the very faith that brought us there to begin with. And it looks like it's a good culture. It looks like it's an amazing culture. It looks like the culture we want to live in because what our culture is doing now in the words of Mark Sayers is they actually want the kingdom. They just don't want the king. So authority, 
of God and of scripture? No, 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 no. We'll do justice, but we'll do it with any sense of morality that comes from the scripture. We'll be moral, but when it comes to things, especially of sexuality, that's got to go. Because that actually bucks in the way, I said buck, um, that, that bucks in the way of my autonomy. And right now it's the glorified self that gets to say what's true, right, and beautiful. Not God who gives it to his people. And so we find ourselves, and not just you, all of us, we find ourselves swimming in those waters in such a way that we've assimilated. So here, here's a way to kind of picture it. Um, there's a movie that came out in the 90s called Bad Boys. And um, I, this was before I knew Jesus and trusted in him, gave my life to him in response to him, giving his life for me, right? So um, in the beginning of uh, Bad Boys, there's a scene. It's Martin Lawrence and it's Will Smith, and they're in this car. It's the very beginning of the movie. You shouldn't watch it, but it's the very beginning of the movie. And, um, and, and it's interesting because they're sitting there and they're arguing, and there's some guys behind them that they don't even know. And these guys have guns, and these guys want to jack them because they got this really, really nice car. And so these guys just don't show up and go, hey, here's a gun. Like, we're going to steal your car. No, what they do is they send this attractive woman out, and the woman walks in front of the car. And so they see the beauty, and both Martin Lawrence and, and Will Smith, their characters, um, they, they look up, and they see the woman, and they get distracted of the beauty that's around them. Next thing they know, there's guns in their face saying, hey, we're about to rob your car. I feel like many of us don't realize this. But like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, we've been given some very good talents and gifts. We've been invited to eat from the, team, the king's table in a lot of areas. We've been, we've been given his drink to be able to drink from, right? We've been given other names. We find ourselves not at all drawing a line and saying this far and no further, but somehow not only are we eating of the king's food and drinking of his drink and taking his name, we've actually assimilated because we've seen the beauty that once we knew came from God, but then the beauty in itself became our God, and we seemed ourselves very tempted in such a way that this whole time we were being jacked and robbed of our faith without even knowing it. So when it comes to the world in which we live in, we can't assimilate. We can't assimilate. There has to be a sense. Because in the culture of assimilation, when it comes to Christians, there's a big view of culture and its good, but then a very small view of God and his goodness, of the scripture and its authority in our life. And so what happens is the pendulum swings to the other side. And, the, and then it says, no, if that's going to happen... We're not going into the city. We're not going to the major universities. We're not going to these particular public spaces. We're going to remove ourselves and our understanding of life from the public spaces, and then we're going to just retreat. Or the other way, we're just going to redraw, and then we're going to have this like Christian holy huddle or a Christian ghetto or gated community. And I'm not saying anything into where you guys live. That's what I'm saying. I'm just giving metaphors here. And so that we're together, and the only people who can get in who know the code. And don't be giving your code to everybody else you know unless you know that they're good for it, right? And so you have this picture of going, Withdraw, and I would say the second posture that we can't have is not only just don't assimilate, like we cannot, so don't, don't withdraw, as tempting as it looks like. So in Daniel's case, and his friends, um, they were actually given word from a false prophet that when they got to Jerusalem, when they got to Babylon, they were like, what are we going to do? Like what, like, what are we supposed to do here? Well, there was a false prophet that began to speak to them, and you can read about it in Jeremiah tomorrow, read the whole book of Jeremiah. Um, and... And they begin to tell them, hey, don't go into, like, like, the city. Like, stay away from that. Don't go into these spaces either. Like, gather together, hang out together, be together with other Jewish men and women, and that's it. Like, stay away. If you have to go in, go in, but then get out as fast as you can. Um, 
And what happens is that Jeremiah speaks on behalf of the Lord, and it's a verse that, verses that we talk about all the time, but he says, no, that's not what God said. He says, I've brought you here for a reason, and I want you to seek the peace of the shalom of this city. He says this in Jeremiah chapter 29. And I want you to marry there. I want you to build gardens there. I want you to build a house there. I want you to take your sons and, and daughters and, and, and find other sons and daughters, let them get married, bring them up in front of the church, dedicate their children to the Lord, and like, like all of those things, right? I, that, we want you to be in this space. Don't, don't withdraw. But that, that's what they were being told. Like, like, you need to withdraw. Like, that's what you have to do. Well, Daniel and his friends know that that can't be an option, even though that is wildly tempting. It's wildly tempting because, in some ways, withdrawal seems a safer way to hold on to your faith. But I'm going to tell you right now, it's not. It's not. It's an incubator that you never get out of. And it's hard to have life. You cannot live in that incubator forever. Right? So here's what the experience is of people in our community. Many of you guys grew up in churches, particularly suburban, middle to upper class churches. And for whatever reason, here's a story that I've heard over and over again in my seven years being here, is you go to these churches and what happens is they preach the Bible, um, they preach the good news of Jesus, um, there's incredible programs. I was in the airplane on the way to Chicago this past week. I don't travel a whole lot. The last week, you're like, man, this guy, he's all over the place, just in the last few days um, or week. It's been so long, I don't even know where I'm at. Um, so... <laughs> But this lady overheard, it was a bunch of pastors going to this conference. She heard this pastor talking about something, and she turned around, and she goes, you know what? We just left a particular church, and I heard you guys talking about starting new churches. Whatever you do, just have a great children's program, and that right there will be it. That will be it. And it was almost like, you want the secret? She literally said verbatim, here's a secret sauce. And you know what? She's right. You want to grow a church? Have really good music, which I don't even know I'm even walking over there. Um, <laughs> that's not going to grow to church if I go over there. <laughs> have really good preaching, and have a really good um, children's ministry and all the best programs. Now, it's not to say any of those things are bad. It's not like, oh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have horrible music. We're going to preach heretics. And we're, you know what? We're going to put, put the kids in there with no adults. That's not what we're going to do. Like, that's, so it's not that. However, what she was trying to communicate is just, just make it in a way that consumeristically, where I am in my stage of life, it makes it safe and comfortable and good for me, and then I'll be a part of your church. And then when my kids become teenagers, and if your teenage community is not that good, we'll just go to the other church. But the four years that we were there, it was amazing. And that's not like she's got a bad heart. You know why? She's got the same heart as I have and the same heart as you have. The sense in that is when it comes to doing particular things from the church standpoint, it becomes a sense of withdrawal and make things in such a way that they're comfortable with Christians. And so many of the people that I listen to, they go, we grew up in that, and we went to the great programs, we had the great youth group, and we went to summer camp, and we got saved, and we emotionally met with Jesus. It's been great. And then somehow we weren't told the truth about the rest of the world. Like in some ways, it's like our parents said, for now, we're going to give you some good, and we're going to tell you partial truths, not the full truth. If you believe in Jesus, your life is going to be great. I'm believing in Jesus. My life sucks. And so what happens is you, people begin to withdraw or become distant from the things of God in church. Like they didn't talk about justice. They didn't talk about race. They didn't talk about these things. It was just somehow, if you believed in Jesus, everything was going to magically work out. So, so what happens is it's kind of like this. We all have had parents who've lied to us before. And I'm talking like, not like the huge lies, where that happens too. But, you know, usually centering around a pet that you used to have. <laughs> right? So we got a pet, and I know you guys, are, I thought you didn't like pets. I used to love pets. We had a dog. His name was Fuzzball. Right? <laughs> Fuzzball was half child, half German shepherd. Just a good-looking purple-tongued dog. Right? 
and we lived on the second story of this apartment complex, and we would put fuzzball out on the uh, patio when we would leave. Now, you're supposed, we used to put like newspaper, we, back then, you know, when people used to get newspapers, we used to put newspapers down so that like, in the, like you, know, if he, you know, if he went to the bathroom, it wouldn't go through the cracks. Well, my mom asked me to do it, and I was like, you know what, he's going to be good, fuzzball's good, if he does something, I'll go clean it up when we get back. We left, and we came back. Now, word is on the street from my mom is that fuzzball could no longer live with this anymore. What happened? Well, because you forgot to put the paper down, fuzzball went to the bathroom, and um, number one, and uh, it leaked through, and the dude, the, the kid that lived downstairs, he was a six-year-old kid, and, and the story goes is that he was having, he had an ice cream, probably from Thrifties, you know, we used to go back in the day, and then he had an ice cream cone, and, and, it, and, and it, you know, flavor, it was, you know, it was like shave ice with the flavors on it, right? And so, so that's what happened. The mom got upset, told the landlord, the landlord told us that fuzzball has to go. And so fuzzball didn't have to go. We were told that fuzzball moved to Texas, right? And we believed it, like, hey, man, it's going to be a better, you know, the parents, he's going to use a lot of space out there. He's not going to be, you know, oppressed by this patio and so forth. And um, as you got older, you realize fuzzball didn't go to Texas. We don't, to this day, I'm 35 years old, about to be time 36. I've never asked my mom the truth because I think she would let them say, listen, baby, fuzzball didn't make it, right? But you grow up and you go, they lied to me. Like, you come up point like, they lied to me. That, that, that was, uh, they lied to me. I feel like we have that experience sometimes in our faith. And not that they explicitly lie, but somehow we're taught that the gospel leads more to a Disneyland-type faith, and yet we find ourselves nowhere near Disneyland in our experience of following Jesus. That somehow, if we had all the right things at the right church, and they said the right things, and we did the right things, and everything's going to be great, our marriages are always going to be great, there's going to be no temptations to ever step outside of marriage. And like, that's not true. That if we actually are single, and, we, are, and we, we desire to be married, and then if we were faithful, and if we were celibate, and we trusted in the Lord, then God will bring the right spouse. And we have many single people who are going, that ain't true. Um, that, if we, that if we just believed in God, it's just me and my husband, and we, we were both, you know, we, we were faithful to the Lord with our purity and so forth, we got married, and then God's going to give us a bunch of kids, and yet every other time that we have this child education, we sit there going, we wish we can be up there with a the child, and it's never happened. I thought if we believed in Jesus, that was going to happen. That, that somehow, that, that if I believed in Christ, and I'm just going many people's experience, the people who go to this church, if I believed in Christ, there were certain values that go together, and most of those values that go together find themselves in a particular political party. And then I realized, as I got older, wait a minute, there's nothing, hear me, nothing, the fullness of my faith could never fit in the container of any political party. Not fully. And now you're going to go on, which one is he talking about? Neither. <laughs> so so we, we have this sense, and then you get older and you realize, you know what, the church lied to me. And what happens is, we begin to divorce ourselves from it. Maybe I'll try the church down the street, and they lied, and the church, they lied. Then I'm out of it completely. But that's what happens when a culture withdraws. They don't know what's going on in the culture. And so even they're preaching, they're preaching to the people who have the same problems and thoughts and desires that they had, and then they release themselves and they go in the world and realize that's not the same problems, thoughts, and desires of the rest of the world. So therefore, I don't have any equipping to understand how to take my faith in the quote-unquote bit bad world. And that's a problem. So not only can we say we can't assimilate, we, we can't withdraw. Because assimilation has the idea of a high view of culture, um, and excuse me, yeah, high view of culture and how good it is, and a low view of God and how good he is. But then when it comes to withdrawal, sometimes we think we have a high view of God, a big view of God, and a big view of Scripture, but we fail to realize um, 
how actually the way we live out our faith is in culture. Because people who withdraw think they're away from culture, and they just created a subculture. And they just take the same things from this culture, and they mimic it, and they just change it. You watch bad boys, we watched good boys. Right? Like, and that's, that's not the way. It's not the way of the kingdom. That's not the way that Christ has called us. Not at all. Not at all. And then we finally get to the point of faithful presence. Look at verse 8 with me again. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Daniel knew there's no getting out of this. There's no such thing as leaving the culture. That would be death. Like literally I'd have to die. That I'm going to be in the world but not of the world. And that phrase, we've even taken that phrase and we've made um, not of the world means all spiritual things, but in the world means all the material things. When, when the writers of the Bible talked about the world, they were talking about the ideologies, the worldviews, and the systems, and so forth. So it says, we are in the world, meaning we are God's people, a part of his kingdom that has broken in through the person and work and the preaching of Christ and the flooding and the filling of the Holy Spirit. We are in the world, but we're not of the world, meaning our ways of thinking and movement and actions and thoughts and worldviews do not flow from the ways and systems and structure of this world, but we have to, in the public space, have a sense of critique and to the things around us, affirm the things we can affirm, reject the things we need to reject, in order to be faithful with God, we're always going to be arguing about which one is too far or too, too far this way or too far this way, but aligning ourselves with the mission and the purpose of Jesus without actually retreating or becoming like the culture around us. And that only happens if we have a faithful presence. And what that means is being faithful to Jesus Christ in the public space and worlds in which we live. So what do you mean by that? Okay, think about this. When you go to assimilation, assimilation says when it comes to things like faith work and economics and things like that, it goes, basically, I'm here to contribute to the goods around, and I'm here to make as much money as I possibly can, um, and maybe do a little bit of good here and there, but it doesn't really matter to God at all, so it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And you go, okay. Well, then withdrawal says this. No, everything matters to God. But when it comes to the conversation of faith work and culture, it doesn't really matter. Here's what matters. There's basically work becomes a means to an end. Vocation becomes a means to an end, and usually two means. And that, that, excuse me, two ends. That end is, one, to make money for my family, to provide for my kids, give me some new Jordans, Toms, right? And so, so you, have, you, have, you have that end, which, by the way, not a bad end. Or the other end is that I work in such a way that I show up on time, I don't leave early, I'm not on Facebook, I say hello to people, that some people may go, wow, there's something different about you. Bam, I expose the gospel right? If I can evangelize and make money, I'm being a good Christian worker. Where faithful presence says, no, 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 no. Yes, I'm going to show up on time. Yes, I'm not going to leave early. Yes, I'm not going to be on Facebook as much, right? And, and I believe that and I'm going to, God willingly, make money because that's the way it's set up in our particular country. And then I'm going to be a part of this as, yes, to provide cultural goods. But there's something about my particular employment that it begins to show the life and the love and the character of who God is. And so I'm here and I'm present, even though there's a tension that I always find myself in of what does it mean for me to actually be faithful to God? Because there's always going to be some vocation that you're in that goes, that seems to be inconsistent with the scripture. What do I do? What do I do? Daniel had that. Daniel, Daniel and his friends, they're, they're there and they're going, okay, we're here now. And um, they just gave us a name. You, you guarantee that some level, they probably got back together and said, okay, what are we going to do? We're gonna, like, they gave me the name Belteshazzar. And then, and then they're like, yeah, I got Shadrach. I got Meshach. And then Abednego was like, I kind of like my name. You know what I'm saying? I'm a bad Negro. That's what he kind of said. That was a slang word for that. <laughs> don't, don't repeat it. If you know, you know you're not supposed to repeat that. So 
so you, 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 you have this sense of going, but these names were named after gods. How did they, have, how did they know how to be faithful? They're going, okay, I think there's a few things, and we'll land here, and we're going to build up on these. One is conviction, community, and prayer. The conviction comes from the sense of where your real authority comes from. Our authority is an authority that is given to us out of love, and it, it flows through grace. Here's what I mean. People don't normally think about grace in terms of authority. But when you think about grace, grace is that the person who is the receiver of this gift is indebted to the giver. That's why we don't like it. We say we like grace. We don't like it. If somebody gives you something that you know that you have nothing to like, like match that gift or better, you say, oh, no, I cannot take that. What you're really saying is, no, I feel like if you do that, I'm going to be indebted to you, and I don't, I don't trust that because I don't really trust authority. Kids, on the other hand, they don't have that problem. Hey, here's a car. <laughs> About time. Thank you. Right? <laughs> because they, are, they understand the authority dynamic. You say, well, how could grace be? Because the authority dynamic of grace, usually outside of the gospel, is that now I've given you something that you owe me, and that is one of domination. However, when it comes to grace that flows from our God, it is, a, it is an authority of love, not domination. It is one of which we now enter into the grace of God, not as a license to do whatever we want, but now as a privilege to be able to be a slave to him because in, in being in, in, in as Paul says, a slave to Christ, being in that way, everything he gives us to do, say, and think is actually beautiful and good. And so we have that sense of going, we have to have that conviction. Daniel said, I'm not going to defile myself. I get I'm not in Jerusalem. I get there's no temple. I get it's not the religious things that I'm used to. But I know this, I'm not going to defile myself. Somehow he has the wisdom to say, give me the name, but I know what my real name is. Some of us have two names. I've shared this before. I have two names. My name is Ricardo. My whole family calls me Sean. People used to say to me, how come you didn't change it to Sean when you went to college or somewhere else? I'm like, because I kind of like the fact that only my family calls me that. My wife calls me Ricardo. She's not family. She's married in. She's family. We are one. We are one. I think it was weird for her when she first, like, would see me around my family. If I'm with my family, I answer to Sean. If somebody else says Sean, I answer to Sean. If I'm around, my family's around, someone could say Sean, I won't even flinch. So I got the name. I got the name my mama calls me. I think in some ways when it comes to not just conviction, but when it comes to community, Whoever it is that raises you, right, those parents that just came up here, it is our responsibility, your responsibility with these kids that we have to raise these kids, that train them in such a way that the community of people, friendships, relationships is such that we understand the biblical narrative that we're a part of, that when we find ourselves in these moments that we call gray moments, but it really moments where we need wisdom to discernment, that wisdom discernment is not coming from within, it's coming from the scriptures and the community that's been reading the scriptures with us that we know what decision to make. So Daniel said, sure, call me Belshazzar. But then there was a moment where he said, but this far and no further. Because then when it came to the food, he was like, no, I'm not eating that. <laughs> if it was the other way around, we just said, no, do not give me the pagan name. Give me the steak. Right? <sighs> he says, no. Not only does he remember what his mom called him, I think he remembered what his mom cooked. And there was some way, somehow, that Daniel was going, I'm not going to be able to eat that food. I know what God has for me. Like, I know who God has I know who I am before the face of God, and for whatever reason, he said, we're only going to drink water and eat vegetables. Guys, that is, not, hear me on this, that is not prescriptive. That is just, just what happened. And they're saying, we're going to be faithful. And I'm going to tell you right now, as we continue to read the story of Daniel, it's not just a conviction they had to follow God and a conviction of understanding God's grace in their life that was given to them, that everything they did was in response to God's faithfulness towards them. And it wasn't, it wasn't just a community, which they did have, Right? 
Like, you read these stories. We tame these stories. I can't wait to teach these stories. We tame these stories like Daniel in the lion's den, and we read them to our kids, and we go, listen, what happened, baby, is um, Daniel was a prayer. He was a mighty prayer. And they said, if you don't pray, we're going to throw in the lion's den. And then they show a picture in the little children's book, and it's this tame lion, like, right? And it's not at all. I don't know if you guys read the story about the lion in Pittsburgh. There was two lions. They'd been married for a while. They had three cubs. The female lion took out the husband lion. That's real. That's what lions do, right? And so this story is a, is a story of going... It wasn't just the good life like we communicate. It's the good life in God, meaning there's suffering. And there's always the risk and the potential of suffering when you're going to step foot in the Lord. That Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they were thrown in the flames. There's, never, there's nothing ever good about being thrown in the flames. And yet they were willing to because there was conviction that they had been nurtured in the community. And here's the last thing, that they pray. They pray because what's the soul? How do we, first and foremost, before we even break all this down. They prayed. They prayed, and they had real prayers, like, like fervent prayers, like passionate prayers, like desperate prayers. Listen, we're not that desperate because we're full on the things of this world that we don't know the appetite that we need for the Lord. We've eaten too much before we came home, and now when mom's got a good meal for us, we're saying, no, thank you. And we have just enough to say that we're still in, or we can just mess around on the plate, eat a little bit, and say we ate mom's cooking, but we've really been actually feasting on the idolatry of our world, that worship in itself is not flowing from the creator in the work of Christ, filled with the spirit, that we have a people who pray. And that's not just, it's all of us, right? I, 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 we can't just keep being okay as Americans, as people going, I know I don't pray, I should pray more. Like, how many sermons can we hear like that? How many conversations can we have like that until we say, oh, what did that actually reveal about our faith? On one hand, people don't pray because they assimilate. And you assimilate because you don't, we don't pray because you don't believe God is good enough. And so we find it elsewhere. On the other hand, and it looks more scriptural, and it looks more biblical, but it's not. People who withdraw, they don't pray because they don't believe God's powerful enough. And so I'm afraid what might happen if I go over there. But the people of God sit right in the middle, right in the heart of the gospel and following Christ who went to the cross and died on behalf of the world and was raised from the dead, who taught his people to pray, who gave us the Holy Spirit to pray, who prays on our behalf and we don't even know because we believe God is both good and powerful and this life is not about me and what I desire, but what God desires for me in his world. That's, that's, that's what he's called us to. And so if, if there's not like, like, what's the so what? That is the so what? That in following Christ, being faithful, be in a community that speaks truth to you, nourish your faith, have biblical convictions of obedience in every area of life, including sexuality, including your thought process, and then and underneath it all is saying, Lord, make us a people who pray because prayer shows that we're relying upon you. If we are not a people of prayer, then who the heck are we relying on? I love you guys. I really do. I do. I do. I feel like right now, and not on my notes, but I'm just going to, well, I'm going to share this and we're going to close. We can get confused that we live a vacation faith. And here's what I mean. I was in Los Angeles, and I love LA, and I know you guys know, I love it. Like, I get nostalgic about home. Um, and I was preaching at this church, and it was me, my wife, and her favorite son. The other son got left back. And, um, and we were there. And uh, 
and you know, we had a chance to like go to, we were, like in, we were like in West LA, you know what I mean? Like beautiful, we're on the Santa Monica Pier, we're going to restaurants, and you know, you have this thought like, man, could we live here? Like, what would it be like to live here? Wow, this is beautiful, this is amazing, and this is great, but here's the deal, I had zero responsibility while I was there, right? I preached one service, which was amazing, I only have a church of one service, hopefully that's prophetic about what we do here. Um, <laughs> I, pre- I preached that one service, and then we had all of this time, and we went to these restaurants, and it was like, you know, you, what do you want to do? It doesn't matter. We have nothing to do. And we, we begin to make decisions off what we think is reality when it's actually not reality. And I feel like when it comes to our faith sometimes, we make decisions off these ideals about God instead of knowing who Jesus is in the regular, mundane, day-to-day. It's why we find ourselves moving from one city to the next, one relationship to the next, one church to the next, something else. Because you know why? Nothing will satisfy like the blood of Jesus Christ. So, so then, that's free. We're going to pray and, uh, and then um, and let the Spirit do in our lives as he should and as he does and as he promises to. Father, we thank you. Um, Lord, I'm personally just convicted, Lord. There's so many things in this world that just could easily trick me. And they speak so well to my heart sometimes, Father. And they're more than just the schemes of the devil. Lord, they might be in a lot of ways just the desires of my broken heart that is in need of your grace. And I know I'm not alone in this. God, you've never called this the fake be your people. You've never called us to just be a counterfeit group of your people. You've called us to things that, are, that, that, that seem and are very difficult. That is, laying our life down for somebody else in the way that you did. Lord, that is, mourning now for we may laugh later. That is, taking our possessions and giving them away for the most vulnerable in our community. That is, promising to us that in this world we will have tribulations, not always happiness, but a joy that's rooted in things that are not circumstantial. So a joy that is everlasting because it's rooted in the person of Christ. Father, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, to have an understanding of what does it look like for us as people in the multiple different vocations and gifts and talents and personalities that you brought as a community to live faithfully in your presence. For those of us who have an idolatry of work, God, would you humble us? Those of us who have an idolatry of people-pleasing, would you show us that your approval of us far outweighs that? For those of us, Lord, who have an idolatry, Lord, of control, would you show us that you were sovereign? And Lord, for the extreme individualism that is in all of our hearts, would you show us, Lord, that the good life is actually rooted in surrender to your life and the life that you've given us in Jesus. Nourish us with this bread. Nourish us with this wine. Nourish us with your truth. In Christ's name, amen.